Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. As a sex researcher, I found that people's sexual identities and sexual behaviors don't always line up in the way that you might expect. For example, a lot of people who identify as heterosexual or straight report having had partners of the same sex, and an even larger number say they've had a same-sex fantasy. In fact, in the survey of 4,175 Americans I conducted for Tell Me What You Want, I found that among adults who identified as exclusively heterosexual, more than half of women and more than a quarter of men said they'd had a same-sex fantasy. A lot of people might assume that these folks are secretly gay or bisexual and just haven't come out yet, but this would be a tremendous and highly inaccurate oversimplification. It turns out that there are at least six types of straight people who engage in same-sex behavior. That's what we're going to be talking about today. My guest is Dr. Arielle Cooperberg, an associate professor of sociology and women's gender and sexuality studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Arielle has published some fascinating research on sexual identity and sexual behavior, and now seems like a great time to talk about it, given that we're in the midst of the Kinsey Institute's 75th anniversary celebration. Dr. Alfred Kinsey was really the first person to conduct large-scale studies of human sexuality, and one of the things he is most famous for is highlighting how sexuality runs on a spectrum. He famously said that the world is not to be divided into sheep and goats. The living world is a continuum in each and every one of its aspects. His well-known Kinsey scale was really the first of its kind in trying to capture sexual diversity and not view it through a binary lens. The Kinsey Institute will be highlighting Dr. Kinsey's contributions to the field all year long and will be putting on a series of events to celebrate. For updates on what's ahead and how to join the celebration, be sure to follow the Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Before we dive into today's interview, if you're looking for LGBTQ inclusive sex education, check out Beducated, the Netflix for better sex. Their online courses will help you to boost your sexual knowledge and skills and cultivate more satisfying relationships. They have courses for persons of any gender, sexuality, or relationship type. The content is inclusive and accessible, and there's a lot you can learn from their courses. You can try them all today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 70% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Miller, as the coupon code. It's just $7.99 per month after that, and the discount is locked in forever. Check the show notes for the link or visit beducated.com and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. All right. Now let's talk about sex. Hi, Ariel, and welcome back to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks for having me again. So I want to speak with you about a large study of more than 24,000 college students you published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. And in that study, you found that 5% of students who reported having had a hookup had a same-sex partner. And of them, 12% of men and 25% of women identified as heterosexual. And you found that these heterosexual folks who were having same-sex hookups could really be clustered into six distinct groups. So let's talk about each one. Now, the first and largest group was the one you characterized as wanting more. So please tell us about these folks. Yeah, so this was the group of people who they were having same-sex hookups in private. They enjoyed their hookups very much. They tended to be a little less drunk than some of the other people during hookups. And they tended to have a little more same-sex 
prior experience, they also tended to know their partners a little bit better. You know, taking all together what we saw in terms of the patterns, what we thought was, this is the group of people who are enjoying their hookup. They want to have more encounters with that person, but they're not yet at the point where they're taking on a non-heterosexual identity, right? They're still identifying as heterosexual in part because as we look at the previous research, sexual identity development can be a kind of process, right? Where people first are like, okay, I'm attracted to same-sex people. And then they may act on that attraction. And then they may start thinking of themselves as a different sexual orientation than heterosexual. And they then may come out as that orientation to other people, right? So this group, what we think is, is they're basically earlier in the process where they've already realized they have same-sex attraction, they've started to act on it, but they're not yet comfortable with any identity other than heterosexual, in part because maybe they've identified that way their whole life, right? So this is the group we think is most likely to change their sexual identity later on. So what we might be seeing here is sort of sexual fluidity in process, right? Where, you know, people's sexual identity and then their sexual attractions and behaviors don't necessarily line up. And so as they explore their sexuality, it's possible that their identities might change to come in line with their behaviors. Um, it's also possible that they won't, you know, because this doesn't always follow the same linear trajectory for everyone. But this first and largest group was really about people who were having a good time exploring their sexuality and they want more. Now, the second group was one you characterized as drunk and curious. And I think that label is pretty self-explanatory, but I want you to tell us a little bit more about them. And I was curious to see this because I saw another study recently that found that the more straight people drink, the more open they are to a same-sex encounter. And so in that study, they literally went up to college students at a local college bar. They gave them breathalyzer tests and they had them basically engage in a game of hot or not, you know, showing people photos of men and women and asking them to rate their attractiveness. And basically they found that the drunker people got, and that was true for both men and women, the more attractive they found someone of the same sex. So tell us more about this group and why drinking might open the door to same-sex experimentation. I think part of it is that drinking lowers inhibitions. And there are many people who grow up in very strict religious families or very socially conservative families who, you know, are not very pro-gay rights, right? Pro-queer rights. And so they grow up not thinking of themselves that way. But then they go to college and they're like, this is the time to experiment, right? And part of the idea, I think, in popular society of college is that one thing you do when you go to college is you get drunk and you hook up with people and you kind of sexually experiment and you sow your wild oats and kind of, you know, have your party time. And that's an expected part, I think, for many young adults of what they expect to do when they go to college. And I think some of those young adults drink purposefully as a way to lower their inhibitions as, you know, what researchers found they call liquid courage, right? So they drink to kind of give themselves more courage to go up to people. And also as kind of a way to say like, oh, I was drunk. I don't know what I was doing, right? And then they could experiment with things that they're curious about, but pass it off to being drunk. 
So I think research on sexual identity generally has found that if you look at the people who identify as LGBTQ, it's a very small group. But if you look at the people who've ever had same-sex sexual encounters, it's a bigger group. And the group of people who've ever had same-sex sexual attraction is even bigger. I think it's something like one in five. So that's a lot of people who, if they're a little less inhibited because they're a little drunk, may try something out that they've always been curious about, especially when they're in a social setting that encourages sexual experimentation. But one thing we found about this group is that they didn't really enjoy the encounter that much. So they didn't regret it. There was another third group we'll talk about next, I think, that did regret it. But they didn't regret it. They weren't as into it as the first group, right? Mm -hmm. So they experimented and they were like, all right, not for me. I'm still heterosexual. But I don't regret experimenting because that's what I came to college to do. And maybe part of the reason they're not enjoying themselves as much is because of the alcohol, which we know can impair sexual performance and function in a lot of ways. And so maybe they set themselves up for a suboptimal experience. But it is so true, I think, that alcohol lowers inhibitions for some people and allows them to explore different sides of themselves sexually and otherwise. And there's a whole fascinating body of research I could do a whole other episode on about just sort of how alcohol changes the nature of sexual experiences. But moving on to the third group, you know, this was kind of the opposite of the first group. So instead of wanting more, they reported having very little enjoyment, but it wasn't because they were drunk. So what can you tell us about these folks who tried it, but just feeling it. Like the first group, they were less likely to be drinking. I think these were the least likely to be drinking. But I think like the second group, they still had this idea that they wanted to sexually experiment in college. But the first group really liked it. The second group is kind of neutral. And the third group did not enjoy it at all. So they experimented and they're like, that it was really not for me. They weren't sexually assaulted, so we did look into whether people are sexually assaulted. It was consensual encounters, but they basically, they didn't like it, right? So, you know, sometimes when you experiment sexually, you find out something's not for you. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the old adage, you know, you don't know what you like until you try it. You know, it does hold some truth with sexual behavior. And This is not to say that, you know, anybody can just sort of try having sex with persons of any sex or gender and they might, you know, discover unexplored sides of themselves. You know, for some people, their sexuality is this very fixed thing in terms of their attractions and those attractions are very stable over the course of their lives. But we also know that sexuality can be fluid. And so sometimes when people explore and experiment, they discover new sources of attraction that they didn't really recognize before and they might incorporate that into their identities. But sometimes they might find, you know, not for me. Now, the first three groups, these were the sexually exploratory groups. Now, the fourth group is very different. This was a group who engaged in same-sex behavior for show or attention. So it's kind of like performative bisexuality. And all of the people in this group were women. So why do some women engage in same-sex activity for attention? And why don't we see men doing something similar? Yeah, this fourth group, it was all women. They all had their hookups in public. It was all kind of low-level hookups. So the first three groups were all in private, and some of them uh, engaged in kind of below-the-belt hookup behavior. But this fourth group, it was all kind of like making out, right? Like kissing and groping, but that was about it. 
And I think part of it, again, is sexual scripts, this idea that heterosexual men are supposedly turned on by same-sex behaviors, while that is not supposed to be a turn-on for women to see men engaging in same-sex behaviors. I think there's a lot more homophobia against men. And if you look at like the later groups, we talk about homophobia. One of the groups that had the most homophobia was mostly men. You know, male same-sex behavior is much more taboo for some reason in society than female same-sex behavior. I think in part because women have less power to begin with. So they don't, they're not seen as giving up something by not being heteronormative or something. Maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. That's like probably a whole other research study right there. And then there is this expectation that, you know, it attracts men. I think, though, and previous research has found that there are also women who use this as a way to experiment also in a way that is socially acceptable and socially kind of venerated in a way in certain social contexts, right? Like if you're in a fraternity party or something. So it may get you social approval. But it's also a way for some people who are interested in same-sex behavior to kind of also experiment, but play it off as saying like, oh, I was doing it for men. So I know there's another study that was, it was a qualitative study that did interviews and they found there was a group who, you know, there was these two girls who would often like make out at parties to attract men, but they found they were also like making out in their own dorm room privately when there was nobody else around. So So part of it, I think there's some of those people may be experimenting as well. And then this is kind of a socially acceptable way to experiment with same-sex behavior that feels less taboo to them than maybe having a private same-sex encounter, because maybe that means something different to them than, oh, it's, you know, something, it was just at a party, right? But, you know, I think there's other people who are totally straight and who do think it attracts men and they do it just to attract men. And one thing we found, it was a, it was also like very young women, right? A lot of them were freshmen. I think there's also like too many movies about college and what to expect in college that show scenarios like this. So I think that also goes into how freshman partying specifically plays out. So fascinating. So, you know, basically there could be a lot of elements here for why someone might engage in performative same-sex behavior. And, you know, for some people, there might be some degree of self-experimentation and they're doing it in a way that feels safe to them. Yes, other people are watching, but they also know it's only going to go so far. So you don't have to, you know, sort of fully commit, if you will, if if it was a private one-on-one sort of context. But it could also be to turn a partner on, to attract a certain partner that you want, to gain social clout. So as you mentioned, you know, all of the participants in your study who fell in this category were women. I have seen performative bisexuality in men. It's rare, but I can think of this time I was at a bar where there was this group of men and women of varied sexual orientations playing spin the bottle. And, you know, whoever the bottle landed on, they had to make out with that person. And actually the straight guys in that group, when they had to kiss another man, like they actually got the most into it out of like anybody in that situation. And I think it was because like they felt there was some social clout that they got from that, at least within that peer group. So it can happen, but it is rarer. And I think you're right that it's because there is that greater taboo against male same-sex behavior in a lot of ways. Now, the fifth group was similar to the first, right? This was a group that wanted more. You know, they were enjoying their experiences, but they were highly religious. And this group was mostly women. So what can you tell us about that? So the first group was more pro 
kind of college sexual experimentation, right? When we asked about attitudes about like, one of the benefits of college is sexual experimentation and things like that. The first group was more likely to agree with this. This group was less into the idea of sexual experimentation. They were similar to the first group in that they were very attracted to their partners. Some of them have ha- had had repeat encounters with those partners. They weren't particularly homophobic, but they did tend to have high religious service attendance. So this was a group that was most likely to be going to religious services at least once a month. I don't think there was anyone in this group who never went to religious services. And a little over half said agreed that religion also informed their sexual views. This group is also pretty young. There was a lot of 18-year-olds in this group. So this was a group that was, they weren't particularly homophobic. They weren't really into sexual experimentation, but they were very religious. They were socially embedded in religious congregations, right? They were going to church frequently and they were having these same sex encounters that they really enjoyed, but they were still calling themselves heterosexual. And this is, you know, I think these are people who are basically closeted. A lot of them were very young. So that may mean that as they get older and a little more independent of the places they came from, they change their sexual identity. But, you know, these are people who may have a lot of social standing to lose by telling people that they're having same, you know, same-sex attractions or... So it sounds like religion is holding them back, but we also know that people's religious identities can change over time. Their degree of religiosity can change. And so to the extent that there are changes there, that might coincide with changes in how they label uh, and identify their sexuality. Now, finally, the last group consisted mostly of men, and you characterize them as the just not who I can be group. So it's kind of like the highly religious group where, you know, they're having these experiences and maybe repeatedly, but they really don't think they can go there in terms of identifying as something other than heterosexual. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, the straight male politicians who wind up in gay sex scandals, like where, you know, they're drawn to this, they're they're interested in it, but that's just not who I can be. So what can you tell us about this group? Yeah, so this group was actually a little less religious than the last group in terms of how often they went to services. So they all, almost all of them said they went to services sometimes, but not more than once a month. So they were kind of occasional religious service attenders, maybe people who go to church on Christmas and Easter. But they had the highest rate of saying religion informs their sexual views. And 98% said homosexual relationships are wrong. So this, and, you know, 70% also said all premarital sex was wrong. So they weren't necessarily the most religious in terms of attending church all the time, but they were the most religious in terms of, right, how much their views were influenced by religion. 87% said religion informed their sexual views, but they were very against homosexual relations. Although a high number also said any consexual sex is okay. So that was like a kind of cognitive dissonance there, right? They were a little more likely to be politically conservative, but actually they were as likely to be liberal as they were to be conservative. They were just more conservative than some of the other groups because uh, college students tend to be a little more liberal in general. And they tended to have hookups with people they didn't know as well. They tended to be drunk during hookups. 
Yeah. So yeah, basically people who have very strong views about homosexuality and are very against it, but then they get drunk and have a same-sex hookup. Thanks for sharing that. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it sounds like this is a group where there's probably a bit more internalized homophobia. It's also making me wonder about just sort of general conformity to masculine norms. Did you have any questions about sort of gender role conformity that, that might speak to that? There were some gender role questions in this data set. I didn't look at them in particular, but there's been a lot of research. So this data set is is the Online College Social Life Survey, which was run by Paula England out of NYU. I was part of a team that helped collect it. And I'm actually a part of a team helping to collect this follow-up survey now. But there's been dozens of articles written with these data, and some have looked at gender role attitudes. So I haven't looked at that in particular, but I think in this case that it would not surprise me if there was kind of more socially conservative gender views among this latter view and ideas about masculinity and heterosexuality being an important part of masculinity for some men. Yeah, that could influence the degree to which they're willing to you know, say they have a sexual identity other than heterosexual. Now, your work in this area shows us that sexual identity and behavior are two different things and that a lot of heterosexually identified people do participate in same-sex hookups but they do it for a variety of reasons. So what's your takeaway from all of this? What do you think it means, for example, for you know, the future of these individuals in terms of their self-identity? Are, to what degree are these groups likely to experience change in their future sexual identity versus not? And you know, what does it mean for sex researchers and people who study sexual orientation? You know, we often only ask one question on surveys about sort of sexual identity, but that doesn't necessarily capture all of their sexual behaviors. So any takeaways you have from this for the casual listener and then also for researchers? Yeah, I think Sexual identity and sexual orientation are a lot more complicated than we think about them. We often think about them in black and white essentialist terms, like you're born that way and it's a matter of uncovering this identity you never knew you had. But sexual identity can be a lot more fluid. It can be shaped by your sexual social context. So if you're around a lot of religious people, that could you know, change what you fill out on those surveys. It could change how you identify to other people. If you are in a college where your expectation is to sexually experiment, it could also change the type of behavior you do. So, I mean, all this to say is that it's way more complicated than we think, right? (laughs) That, you know, your sexual identity and, you know, who you're attracted to is shaped by biological forces at play, but there's also the social context you're in and what your expectations are. These things can change over your life. Your attractions can change over your life. People's identities can change based on who they're with at the time. So they, you know, some people may feel like, oh, I married a man, so I can't, you know, I remember when I first got married, I was like, should I tell people I'm bisexual, really? Because I'm married to a man. So I don't know, am I really bisexual anymore? You know, I've had that kind of question in the back of my head of like, you know, queer imposter syndrome too. So I think, you know, sexual identity also is kind of shaped by all these, you know, your relationships in your life. And yeah, it's easy to characterize it in black and white terms. And I think sometimes that's politically easier. But you know, from a scientific view, it's much more complex than that. 
yes, it's <laughs> complex, it's messy, and there's not just one question you can ask on a survey that's going to sort of tell you the entirety of an individual as a asexual being. So just something important to keep in mind for current and would-be sex researchers that, you know, it's just a harder thing to study than you think and to recognize that things can and often do change over time in terms of people's sexuality and sexual identity. So thank you so much for this great conversation, Ariel. Thank you for having me. Thanks again. And thanks for listening. To keep up with the latest sex research, check out my sex and psychology blog or follow me on the socials and be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Until next time.